Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining me for Stay Free with Russell Brand today. Thank you for being a part of this movement. Thank you for believing in revolution. Thank you for being willing to take part in the change inside yourself that's necessary if we're gonna change the world. Surely now, as close as we're likely to get on this channel to a returning messiah, is our next guest. NHS doctor, that in our country means the National Health Service in the UK. That means a general family doctor, but now public health activist. Enlightened and awakened by events during the pandemic, Dr. Bob Gill has become a prominent voice and ally for those of us, excuse me, that are questioning the way that the narrative unfolded during the pandemic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bob. Great to be here, Russell. So one of the stories that would be a great place for us to start would be this seemingly peculiar and surely not true claim that the version of the Pfizer vaccine that was initially tested and as I understand given to Pfizer employees was different from the initial round of vaccines released in the UK. Am I getting that right? Because it doesn't sound like it should be true. Yeah, that's right, Russell. There, there were two processes used to produce the mRNA vaccine. One was a quite expensive, but a clean process, uh, which was using our DNA to sequence RNA. And the second process, process two, which was used to mass produce the vaccine, was using uh, E. coli and putting into E. coli plasmids and getting the E. coli to reproduce the mRNA. So it's a cheaper form of producing the vaccine. But the problem with that is you can get contamination. So you can get genetic material from the E. coli uh, into your vaccine vial. Now, a very, there's a very low threshold of tolerating contamination within, within vaccines. However, uh, you know, researchers looked into this matter and found very high levels of contamination with DNA. Now, the problem with DNA is it can potentially get incorporated into your own genome. And also the presence of DNA can actually spark anaphylaxis. That's when you get a severe allergic reaction. And I don't know if you remember, but once the, the Pfizer vaccine came out later on, a week or two later, they started telling uh, practitioners to keep the patients with you for 15 minutes, keep an eye on them for 15 minutes after the vaccine. Now that was related to the potential reaction to, to the endotoxin from the E. coli contamination. So that's where that came from. And you know, this research initially done by a Dr. Kevin, Kevin McKernan, who's a very highly qualified, respected uh, academic, who, whose whole life is devoted to you know, researching these matters. Uh, he was part of the Human Genome Problem, pro, uh, Project, highly credentialed person. Now, his work has been replicated in Japan, in Europe, in, in other units in the US, and they've all found very worrying high levels of contamination. And, you know, the problem was Pfizer didn't de declare this to the regulator. So that's the problem. And later on, they were forced to declare it to the European regulator. So they've actually confirmed it themselves that this problem exists. It's been extraordinary the way that information has begun in the protean swamp of conspiracy theory and bubbled its way up through the various channels and valves to accepted medical 
data. For example, I remember hearing very early in the pandemic period posts that would definitely have been censored that the problem with this vaccine is it has the potential to alter your DNA. I feel like that was one of the kind of stories where I thought, oh, even for me, a person that's open to almost any anti-authoritarian narrative that has no trust in the legacy media, that has very little trust in big pharma at all, no trust in the state, surely it doesn't have the potential to alter your genetics. I thought that was sort of highfalutin. But you're saying that that actually is one of those conspiracy theories that's kind of true. Yeah, there is a risk. So, that, you know, the DNA contamination poses several threats. It's, it promotes clotting. It promotes immune dysfunction. And at some level, it can promote cancerous transformation. Now, that if you have, you know, some of this DNA being entered into, into your own cell's DNA, it can actually turn on uh, the process of cancer. And if you add that in with immune dysfunction, then the risk becomes real. And that risk has been documented elsewhere. Um, so, you know, this is coming from highly respected sources. If people want to look into this further, I, I suggest they look on the World Health Council's Twitter, and they've got a three-hour lecture going into the detail of all of this most recent revelation and analysing the implications. You're talking, I suppose, about SV40 DNA. That's that's specifically the name, is it, of the aspect of this um, uh, malformant component that can induce or can be carcinogenic. That's right. So it was recognised this SV40, simian virus 40, a you know a strip of genetic code has the potential to be a cancer promoting gene. It needs other factors to align up. So. But the, there is no rational explanation as to why this even got into the Pfizer vaccine. That is the problem with all of this. What is it doing there? What, why is that contamination? Why is that sequence of code even in the vaccine? So it raises lots of questions about what's gone on in the production. What questions? What questions? Why shouldn't it be in there? What, why, what you mean you can't, they can't identify what the function of that is? You, you can't explain why that was in the vaccine, you know, why that specific coding, which is recognised to be potentially dangerous, how did that end up in the vaccine? It wasn't required for the process, the production of the vaccine. That's the problem. So between the testing and, you know, Albert Baller turning up on TV shows saying it's 98% effective, claiming it was a kind of wonder drug, that it was a moonshot, a few weird little things happened. They started using plasma out of E. coli that they hadn't previously been doing. And there's the odd introduction of SV40 DNA that promotes cancer. Those Are you saying that both of those things happened between trialling and release? Yeah, they, they used a different, cleaner process for the trial and a a cheaper mass production process for the vaccine that was rolled out to the public. Now, to use E. coli to produce mRNA in this way is not uncommon. The problem is the contamination issue. If your quality control isn't good enough, if you outsource the production to labs you've got no control over, that's where the problems arise. Yeah, I suppose you're alluding to the many stories about the lack of standards in um, many of the labs where clinical trials took place, they're almost too difficult to number and they're certainly difficult to locate due to the uh, clandestine shrouding of these issues. Another thing that seems pertinent to talk about, you and I both being in the UK right now, is the um, British politician Andrew Bridgen last night or earlier this week, a couple of days ago, I think, 
raising the question of excess deaths in British Parliament. There's a few things I want to point out. Like, this phenomena of excess deaths is one of the things that's been masked. Many people that were in this space questioning many the way that COVID was being reported on noted that there appeared to be an attempt to attribute to coronavirus itself adverse side effects that could potentially have been caused by the vaccine. This 60,000 additional deaths that took place in the United States, I think I'm right in saying between 21 and 23, um, as was pointed out in, uh, tell me the name of that author when you get a minute, James, was uh, like um, was pointed out in the book about excess deaths was, uh, you know, a Vietnam War worth of casualties. The America lost as many young people in the Vietnam War over a 12-year period as it did in that two-year period to excess deaths. How come excess deaths is still a difficult subject to talk about. How come there was hardly anyone in Parliament, that's our form of Congress, when Andrew Bridgen raised the matter? What's going on with excess deaths? Is, are we gonna, is this going to be another of the strands around this period of time that we're gonna, that's going to disclose important information to us? Well, I think that the politicians, unfortunately, have a vested interest in covering all of this up, don't they? Because they've, they've uh, followed the narrative of the drug companies. They've allowed us to uh, do what m amounts to a mass experiment, vaccinating the whole population uh, against a virus which a lot of us had developed natural immunity to. So they were pushing this vaccine down our throat. And now that the uh, chickens are coming home to roost, they don't want the impact of their decisions to be known widely amongst the public. So they might share some of these concerns you know, Andrew Brigden and others have done a lot to try and bring this to the attention of politicians and they're willfully being blind about what's going on here. Yeah, it does seem like that because of the many concerns, shall we call them, that sprung up around this period after the initial explosion of euphoria and excitement that accompanied the advent of the vaccine, which many media institutions try to artificially maintain. When inquiry did begin, it was, I suppose, focused on the potential that the vaccine could have consequences that are worse than the problem that it was invented to solve. Now, as time goes on, it seems that we're moving closer to that conclusion rather than further away from it. It did seem that there were a number of sudden unexplained deaths. It's another one of those subjects that people were discouraged from discussing, even though it became almost anecdotally observable. The evidence of your own eyes when people were dropping dead on sports fields, young famous people dying and therefore being reported on, the number of... Uh, you know, the sort of uh, the number of morticians and people working in various funeral services saying that they were seeing stuff that was didn't make sense. People within in our country, the health service pointing out that deaths were being reported inaccurately. At this point, it's we've we've arrived now. We've arrived now. Uh, uh, it seems to me a point where there needs to be a kind of reckoning that even if you were to take this subject in isolation, away from the concerns around the military-industrial complex, the nature of legacy media, the obvious hypocrisy and corruption of the years leading up to coronavirus, but that period is simply revealed rather than created. So it seems that there's 
a necessity for a kind of a pandemic reckoning. But that's unlikely to take place, isn't it? When both, when in this country and in America, broadly speaking, both political parties have a general alliance and, and very little appetite to hold to account the powerful interests that contributed to, if not caused, many of these problems. Yeah, I think you, you, you get to the heart of the matter. There is a distinct lack of accountability. There is no reckoning. We, we have a media that is docile and complicit, uh, you know, repeating without question the political talking points. So you, you have a like, corporate capture of the, the state and you have a complicit media. So accountability becomes a rarity. You know, if we ever get close to accountability, it's normally lip service. How many public inquiries do we have where nobody goes to jail for major failings? You know, they get a rap on the knuckles and uh, 20 years down the line, we get close to the truth. This is not, this is a built in design. It's not a flaw. That's the design of the system to set up regulatory bodies that give the impression of independent oversight. But they're generally toothless. And you appoint people from the very corporate interests that you're supposed to be regulating. So, you know, an idiot might make the, you know, anybody might make a mistake, but an idiot makes the same mistake again and again. You've got a 50% chance of being right, even as a fool, right, in a binary decision. But these people keep making the same decision time and time again, and you can only conclude this is deliberate. This is part of the system. Yeah. Another of the components of this has been the, changing nature of reporting around myocarditis and pericarditis. That's another one of the subjects that just couldn't be discussed, that was regarded as a conspiracy theory. You know, when initial adverse events were reported or when anecdotally people talked about stuff like that, it was regarded as a, a kind of cultural heresy. But now Pfizer have been forced to confirm the increased risk of myocarditis in young mouse. What does that shift tell us? Are we likely to see further shifts? And at what point do these shifts amount become tantamount to admission of a failure of the whole project? Yeah, so they've been dragged kicking and screaming to this point. You know, people like uh, Peter McCullough have done a lot of work, you know, the famous cardiologist, done a lot of work raising the awareness about myocarditis with the vaccine. At the beginning, you know, people were conflating having the illness with the vaccine, but actually you can do specific tests which show that what was present on post-mortem examination, special stains can identify that the protein within the heart, the, the genetic material within the heart was spike protein produced by the vaccine. So you can do very clever tests to find out, was it the virus or was it the vaccine? And it was work done by, I think it was a team in Germany that looked at post-mortems of people with sudden death to look unexplained sudden death, to look was there myocarditis and what was the source of that myocarditis. So the hard work has been done. And I think Pfizer's, you know, eventual admission of the problem is, I think, their way of managing their corporate image and corporate trust. If you give a little bit, you may come across as having an ounce of integrity. And I think that's what's going on there. Yeah, and they're obvious and it's hardly necessary to state that the financial, institutional, corporate and global structures that undergird these types of issues and these types of organisations are never able to be fully interrogated and investigated 
because if you were to, in a, you would no longer be able to sustain this model. With BlackRock's Larry Fink showing uh, support, or I think vocalising support for the Labour leader Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition equivalent, I suppose, to the Democrats in this country, does that further demonstrate the impossibility of ever addressing these issues for established democracy. If you put together Andrew Brigden talking to an empty parliament with Keir Starmer essentially being verified by the you know, global financial interests, should we say, for the sake of simplicity, how through parliament, through Congress, through conventional democracy, a democracy that many people believe to have been entirely corrupted, are we ever able to have the reckoning that appears to be necessary? Well, you know, I'll just um, read you a quote from Mussolini. Fascism should be rightly called corporatism as it is the merger of state and corporate power. That's what Larry Fink has demonstrated. He's given Keir Starmer his blessing. Why? Not because uh, based on some moral principles or righteousness, based on how he's going to maximise the return for the, his investors. That's what it's all about. So, you know... That's where the that's where the power comes from. It's money, and the politicians are looking for big backers because, in due course, no doubt after they leave politics, they want to cash up for their compliance with corporate power. So this is this is the uh, belly of the beast, I'm afraid. And you know, and unless we get a critical mass of informed public, awakened public, there can be no reckoning. There can be no change to the system that is endemically putting money above the environment, above human life, above everything else. That is, that is unfortunately the, the power. And the, the pandemic we have is of greed and of self-interest. That's the real pandemic. Yeah, and it's difficult to address that kind of pandemic without spiritual measures, without personal awakening, without a set of cultural values that are very much at odds with the current momentum. As well... I would say, Bob, with a culture that seems very fractured, where a lot of energy seems to be spent through the legacy media, crushing dissenting voices and discrediting them and ensuring that there is ongoing cultural conflict between people who, in alliance, the kind of alliance that might be achieved if power were wherever possible decentralised and people able to run their lives culturally however they want to, it seems... Very difficult to imagine that kind of awakening take place. So can you just for a moment talk on the importance of independent media, talk on a moment of, uh, uh, for a moment on the kind of spiritual principles that appear to be somewhat lacking and need to be promoted and how you have gone from being like a family doctor to someone who, like when you're talking and you're sort of quoting Mussolini, not favourably, not as a hero, but as a warning from history. It's like, where do, you know, where do you see your this journey going for you? So there's a few questions there: independent media, spiritual values, and your personal journey. Because it sounds like you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So you know, independent media are clearly a threat to the narrative that corporate media generates, and you know that's why they're trying to shut people down. People as yourself, you know, other important voices out there are a real problem for them. So, you know, if you're getting attacked, you clearly you're doing something right. Um, you're, you know, the spiritual point you make is in, it's important because the values we all share are, you know, to be able to look after ourselves, our families, 
and live a reasonably happy life. These are not unreasonable demands, but that is not allowed to happen. We don't have peace of mind. We don't have secure work. We don't have a welfare state or a social security system, which is up to the needs that are out there. So in order for us to, uh, you know, not look up, not look at the people controlling this system, but to spend our time fighting each other, you need to generate these divide and rule narratives, be it on cultural issues, be it on trans rights, be it whatever, you know, every one of those narratives is used to divide the people at the bottom so they don't have time or headspace to look up. So that's, that's what the, you know, that is, when everybody, when all media are pushing a certain line, you need to smell a rat. Yeah. There's a problem there. When you have the CIA uh, pushing out memes about trans rights, you have to suspect what they're really up to, right? You know, we pay lip service to respecting the rights of women and children in Afghanistan, yet we're quite happy to bomb women and children in Gaza at the moment. So these things don't add up. And where, you know, where there is no consistency in the application of stated principles, we need to be suspicious and start looking more critically into that matter. So where are you taking it yourself? Because it seems like it's going to be very difficult for you to sit in a surgery and just, you know, as a doctor say, well, here's your fifth booster shot. I mean, what are you saying to patients at this point? And how is your the conflation of your roles as a doctor and as an activist um, balancing out now? So, you know, when Asim Malhotra, who you had on your show, I believe it was last week, he produced a paper looking at Pfizer's own research evidence. And actually he sent it to me before he published it. He said, what do you think about this? And once I read that, he said, can you, can you give me a quote before we get it published, put it out in the media? I said, reading that, I cannot in any good conscience give anybody an mRNA shot. I can't do it anymore. So I had to stop. I would be a total hypocrite if I came on here pointing out the problems and concerns out there about myocarditis and the contamination, and then to carry on giving them, although there is a significant financial incentive to keep doing so. That is the, that is the problem. There are perverse incentives for us to act against our conscience, for us to be selectively and willfully blind about what's going on around us. And, you know, I, I've reached the stage of my career that, I don't, if they come for me, I'm taking that risk. I'm not prepared to do something. I came into medicine not to harm people, right? And if you come across enough evidence and concern that you might be doing harm, I'm not going to go there. That's, I'm not going to be blind to it either. It's just not for me. And if that means losing my job, well, that, so be it. It's frightening though, isn't it, Bob? I, I, um, it seems that in the United States, Biden's given a green light to corporate control in healthcare. United Health Group's enrollment growth over the past decade is solely from Medicare and Medicaid, with taxpayers significantly contributing to the company's profits. The Medicare program has transformed into the insurance industry's primary revenue source. Tell me how Biden's uh, posturing around Medicare and Medicaid is actually just another form of uh, profiteering, corporatism, and uh, the monetization of the health industry? Yeah, so, you know, Medicare and Medicaid are state-funded health provision for those people who are left out of the 
insurance-based system because they're too sick or they're too poor. They can't make money out of those people. So the state has had to step in as a last resort. Now, when the state was providing that care itself, there wasn't money being siphoned away. But what's happened over, over recent years is they've actually appointed people from United Health and other healthcare companies to run the federally funded service. So the revolving door, we have the revolving door again. And what has that allowed? That's allowed them to bring in, uh, to loosen regulation and to allow the insurance companies to come in and run what is paid by the taxpayer. So they can siphon yet more money into their own coffers. And that's what's happened in the UK. So, you know, legislation passed last year replicated the American managed care system in law, breaking these up into 42 funding units. And guess who's slipping in the back door? United Health. So the plan is whatever money is spent, be it through taxpayer or be it through the individual buying private insurance, these companies want a slice of the action. And they're, 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 they're intermediaries. You don't actually need them to run a self-service. What you need is a you need hospitals, doctors and nurses and some drugs, right? You do not need insurance managers and CEOs and all these legion of administrators. They're totally unnecessary. But the, the growth of the intermediarization in healthcare is what's draining one in three dollars in the U.S. spent on healthcare is going out to these people who provide not one second of care. Now, what a lunatic system that is that we, are, we have chosen to replicate in this country. Tell me about your documentary, Bob. I feel like you're covering in the film, The Great NHS Heist, how the corporatization of our still nominally state-run welfare-oriented health service has been co-opted and almost that's not something that's been voted on or even explained. What, what is the subject of your documentary, Bob? Yes, it's really to highlight, you know, what the NHS to corporations are a series of assets which are to be stripped or to be mined for the recurrent, you know, tax taxpayer funded money that comes in. So this is to them bags of cash. And, you know, what the government should be doing is protecting the public's interest with our taxes. But what it's actually doing is selling us out. So, you know, Healthcare can be divided up into three assets. You've got the real estate, you've got the patient data, which is an increasingly commercializable asset, and you've got the funding. But that the control of those assets now is very much transferred into the private sector. And in order for them to maximize profit, they do it through the denial of care. And what the film tries to do is to not to not make a humanitarian case, to not make an ethical case. We make an economic case for why this is a disaster, not only for the sick people, but for the economy in general, because the more you waste on healthcare, the less you can do for, you know, investment in infrastructure or, or whatever it might be, because there's an opportunity cost. If you're wasting 30% on overheads and CEO bonuses, well, you're not spending it on delivering healthcare. So, so that that is what, what what the film explains, and it tries to merge the U.S. experience with what's happening here, to to have a wider appeal. And you know, in my dreams, I thought we'd be inundated with calls from Americans telling us, "What the hell are you guys doing, copying our crazy system?" Right? I was inspired by watching Michael Moore's Sicko, and uh, you know, that's what led me to do this. 
Why did it fall on me as a GP to do this in my spare time? Because of what we discussed earlier, the corporate media are doing a job of keeping us in the dark. That's all they're interested in. Bob, you're a really great ally and you're a great person. Thank God there are people in your position that are willing to take the risks and make the sacrifices that you're making. Thanks very much for coming on our show. Good luck with your documentary and good luck with your ongoing mission. Thank you very much, Russell. Keep up your great work too. Certainly you shall try to. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Doctor. Dr. Bob's documentary, The Great NHS Heist, is available now. We'll post a link right away and you can follow him on X at Dr. Bob Gill. He's worth following because he's a doctor who's willing to confront authority and willing to say the to him personally expensive and risky truth. On the show tomorrow, we've got Neil Oliver, who you might know from GB News, you might know as a public commentator. He's someone who appears to have really captured a lot of attention through his ability to analyse and explain many of the events in recent years. And also, I feel like I look a bit like him. It's going to be interesting, I think. He's Scottish, he's got a mellifluous, lilting accent. I think it's going to be a pretty good conversation. Join us for that. If you want to become a member of our community and get all sorts of additional content, press the red button that's on the screen now. You get early access to interviews. I do meditations with you. You get readings like we're going through the Bible now. Plus, we discuss how we might move on from where we are now. Seems to me pretty obvious. Awaken everybody that you possibly can. Find people in positions of authority and experience that are interested in living in a new way. Accumulate a new system adjacent to this current corrupt one and vivify it with our powerful spiritual energy and be willing to engage in this spiritual war like these people, these new awakened wonders are. Creature 61, welcome to the movement. John Gore, SOS, you're going to love it here. Hands man, I could not love you more. Fubar123, how I love you. And where would we be without enough shit fuckery? It's difficult to imagine a world without you. That is ingeniously spelt, but when pronounced, it amounts to little more than swearing. You are an awakened wonder. You're welcome with us. Join us tomorrow, not for more of the same, but for more of the different. Until then, if you can, stay free. Many switch in, switch on, switch off. Many switch in, switch on, switch off. Switch on. Many switch in, switch on, switch off. Many switch in, switch on, switch off.